Welcome, Ted. Really thrilled to have you on the podcast today, and I'm excited to find out a lot more about you in this episode of The Adventures of Alice and Bob. For those of you who don't know, Ted Harrington is the executive partner at Independent Security Evaluators, ISE, who are ethical hackers famous for hacking cars, medical devices, and password managers. Ted has also helped hundreds of companies fix tens of thousands of security vulnerabilities, and his team founded and organizes the IoT Village, an event whose hacking contest has produced three DEFCON black badges. So Ted, I, I hope I've done your introduction justice. Um, that's just a, a short kind of list of the, the shopping list of achievements and accolades, and I feel like I'm only scratching the surface. Would you like to kind of kick things off and tell our listeners about how you first got started in security? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. How did I get started? Well, before I even entered the security field, I was in an unrelated career path, related only in the sense that I was pursuing entrepreneurship. I mean, that's just been an entrepreneur since I was like a kid. And what wound up happening was that the guy who I'm now in business with, my, my business partner, he and I have a friend in common. And that friend in common, it was kind of an interesting moment because this friend introduced us because my partner at the time, he was taking the company that we now run together. He had started it a few years earlier and he was wanting to sort of reboot it. He bought out his co-founders and was basically starting the company over. And I was at a point in my career, where I, was, I was running this tech company that was focused in water, uh, not in security at all. And uh, this friend was like, I think you guys might get along. Like, why don't you just meet and go from there? And uh, so I was living in San Diego at the time. Um, my partner lives, my business partner lives in Baltimore. And so it was literally like 24 hours, you know, like first flight out Saturday morning, wound up partying with him like all night. It was an interview that like we were interviewing each other basically. And it turned into you know, 3 a.m., we're standing on the street corner with a beer in our hand. We're like, I think we should do this. <laughs> and then I get on the plane like a few hours later, fly back to California. And that was like 11 years ago. And um, so it, it, what's really interesting to me anyway, as I think about sort of that, that journey is I didn't know anything about security when I started. Uh, I just understood the principles of like, how do you build a company and culture and like, and obviously instinct and some of those other things that I brought along with it, but I really didn't understand security at all. And the reason that I'm highlighting that is that, you know, here I am like 11 years later and, you know, I've written a best-selling book on the topic and I get to, you know, serve audiences all over the place, giving talks and stuff. And the reason I'm highlighting that is not to like pat myself on the back. I don't think I deserve a pat on the back, but because I hear people all the time. I mean, every day people are people self-select themselves out of things. And they're like, oh, well, I didn't I didn't study security in college. I haven't hacked something. Uh, or I am hacking something, but it's not like an O day that would be worthy of presenting at DEF CON or something. People are constantly removing themselves from candidacy of pursuing something because of their own opinion on it. And I look at it, I'm like, if, if a guy who didn't know anything about security can enter security and thrive, you certainly can too. And so if there's one thing maybe that, you know, someone takes away from our time together today, it's remove those self-limiting beliefs because you're the only one holding yourself back. So you say there, like self-limiting beliefs, I kind of tug on that thread a little bit more. Being a bit more kind of tactical, 
What were some of the conversations, like those inner monologues you had with yourself about overcoming some of those limitations? I just didn't want them. I So I first recognized that they existed, right? Um, it, it's actually interesting the way you, you asked that question because uh, a friend of mine I was having coffee with the other day, um, she is this really talented artist and it's really fascinating to me to talk to people from other fields. And so she literally, her profession is she gets paid to paint and to assist these like workshops that people create art. And so very, very different field, right? From hacking. And we were talking about this idea of like self-limiting beliefs or whatever. And she's like, you're a pretty confident person. Like, do you have that problem too? And, and I said, yes, I have self-limiting beliefs just like everyone else does. But what I do is I recognize them as what they are and then either accept them. Like, it's okay if you're like, I can overcome that self-limiting belief, but I just don't want to. Like, I don't feel like investing the time and effort into that to become whatever that thing is. That's not a path I choose to pursue. But if there is a path I do want to pursue, then I recognize the self-limiting belief exists. And I will do things in order to overcome them. So, for example, when I you know, first started this security journey, I was looking at this, you know, how do I become an expert? I, that's what I wanted to do. Not only to just, I didn't want to just run a great company and build a great company, uh, which I do want to do those things, but I wanted to also understand what I'm talking about. And so then I went through this thought, thought process of, okay, well, how do you get to a point of understanding what the hell you're talking about? And so then I started thinking about when you go to conferences, um, the people on a stage, some of them know what they're talking about. Actually, m many of them do not know what they're talking about, <laughs> but, but some of them do. And so I'm like, okay, well, maybe, maybe that, that should be the goal. Like I should be someday be the person who can be on a stage. And because if you're that kind of, if you can get to the point of being able to be on a stage, you have crystallized an idea, you're serving an audience, you give people calls to action. Like there's, there's a lot of really powerful simplicity that comes out of giving a talk. And... So I, I went for it and I, uh, you know, in those days I was applying to speak at conferences. My, my life's a little different now with how I wound up on stages, but you know, that's like you're responding to call for papers and stuff like that. And so I submitted to a call for paper and I got accepted. And then it was like, well, now I need to actually be able to give a, give a good talk. It was sort of like, I just, I just shot it out there knowing that if accepted, it was going to force me to overcome that self-limiting belief. Like, oh, I'm not a, I've never done this before. I don't know how to do this. And it was cool because then I had whatever it was, like four months or three months or something to prepare for this. And so I spent all that time now perfecting this one talk. And I was, I was terrified. I was like, I don't want anyone to ask me a question because all I, I can only, I've only prepared like this one list of you know, ideas. And I'm sure that first one, I'm sure it was awful. I mean, it's hard to you know, really judge yourself. I didn't, there wasn't like a camera, so I couldn't review that first one. Uh, I'm sure it was terrible, but I did it. And then I built from that and built on that and built on that and built on that. And so that's how I overcame it by first recognizing that the self-limiting beliefs existed and then coming up with a goal that if achieved would overcome the belief. And then once you have the goal, then you build uh, a process where you form habits and like, how do you actually achieve that goal, what's the process you achieve it? So the combination of those three things is how I dealt with it. I think there, 
Well, my head's immediately going is you, you obviously co-founded the IoT Village that runs at DEFCON RSA and lots of others in the online version as well. Do you, do you kind of see a younger Ted in some of the people that present there and, and how do you kind of coach them and help them in that community? I've never really thought about it that way. Um, I definitely see, you know, aspects of my personality. I mean, that's what's, that's what drew me to security was these people who are really driven and problem solvers and intelligent and like, didn't mean to call myself intelligent in the context of that, but like, I'm really drawn to that, that type of, of people. And, um, so being in that community, I mean, that's what the security community is to me, right? People who do hard things that, especially things that everyone else is like, you can't, you're, you shouldn't be able to do that. And I love that about the hacking community. People are like, well, maybe I can, maybe I will. And so I definitely, I definitely do see that. Um, it, it's funny you mentioned IoT Village because uh, the origin story of that was kind of wild. We, the very, very first one, was we were, uh, we had just published this research around, we were, we were looking at routers and we, we'd hacked a whole bunch of routers. We'd published it and it made really big news at the time. And uh, we started talking to DEF CON about, well, what if we had like a router hacking thing? And that thing eventually became what is today IoT Village. Actually it became IoT Village the, the next year. The first year it wasn't called IoT Village. First year it was, um, we called the con and we still call the contest this so hopelessly broken because Soho routers, small office, home office, so hopelessly broken. But the very, very first one was hilarious. We were so today, what IoT Village looks like and what started are very different. So the very first one was literally, you know, when you go to a conference, any conference, but DEF CON definitely in particular, but any conference, there's like the main area of the conference, right? There's the like the main hall where the vendors are, and then there's the main hall where the main uh, talks are but then there's all the other stuff and it's like you go down a hallway and then maybe another hallway and in the big conferences there's another hallway and then another hallway so that was us like down a hallway 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 and then you get to the room and you're in the room and it's a teeny little room and it's not even our room it was someone else's room it's like some other content was happening there and then there's one table in the corner and that table is placed literally behind a trash can so the whole event, people were throwing trash in the trash can and like, you know, 20% of people miss. So trash, literally people's trash is all over our table as we're trying to run this like little hacking contest. And um, that, that was very humble beginnings of it. But even in that, we're like, this is going to be big. I think this is going to be cool. We're going to make it bigger than, IoT, uh, bigger than routers. We're going to make it about all connected devices. And we had this aspiration. It, the aspiration wasn't to be necessarily like the biggest or best or, or whatever. Well, let me rephrase that. It wasn't necessarily to be the biggest. That isn't necessarily the goal, but we did want to be the best. And so then we were like, well, how do you run? And that's not about competing with other villages. That was about competing with ourselves. How do we create a village that we can be proud of? And that mindset, I think, is a little different from the way most villages are run. Most villages are volunteer run, which is what makes them amazing. Ours is volunteer run too, but it was backed in terms of financially and uh, person power resources by our company. And that's really different from someone who has to ask leave of their company to go organize something. And so very, very quickly, it then grew into this really big, beautiful thing 
And now when I walk around the different villages, it's, it's really, I take it as a source of pride that a lot of the really successful villages, they look and feel like the aesthetic that we built, you know, like purple lights everywhere and music, very interactive and the programming, the content, it's not like we changed that for other villages. I mean, villages have been doing this for such a long time, having this amazing way to interact with content, build community, all this stuff. But we wanted to have an experience where it was like you come in and like this feels good. And that's been really, really cool for me. And, and I definitely don't mean to take credit for what other villages are doing. By all means, other villages have created amazing things. What I mean to take credit for is how we went from literally a trash can to an experience that people really enjoy participating in and then also see that it's helped influence the way maybe some others think as well. And that to me, I think is, is really, really cool. And, and in the intro, you said we've, um, our contest, the, the winners of it have actually gotten the black badge three times. We actually just did it again this year and I forgot to update the bio. So four, four black badge badges have come out of a result of people participating in, uh, in our contest. That's incredible. Oh, that's, that's some great news. And yeah, scoop on the podcast here. Thank you very much for that. Um, I'm going to dig into that a bit more because one of the things you said you loved was the kind of community around hacking. And we're always, we're always kind of hearing like, think like a hacker. You should think like a hacker. What does think like a hacker mean to you? It's funny you asked that particular question because I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. It's one of the key themes in, in my book, which you can see right behind me, Hackable. Um, and I actually just got back from Frankfurt a couple months ago where I gave a Ted talk on this exact topic. Uh, it should be dropping any day now. And the title of it is why you need to think like a hacker. And so of course I make the case for a general audience, like for anyone who's not familiar with a Ted talk, you know, Ted talks are, they're for everybody. They're for a general audience. Like your parents should get value out of it. So I couldn't as I wanted to talk about this idea of what it means to think like a hacker and why it's important, I needed to make it relatable to everybody. It couldn't just be about security professionals. It couldn't just be about technologists. And so as I was thinking about that, I really started thinking about, well, what are, how does a hacker think? And uh, there's, more, there's more layers to it than what I'll describe right now. But as I see it, there's really three primary traits that all hackers, both the good kind, you know, the, the ethical hackers, people who come you know, from the corner world that I come from, as well as the malicious hackers, the attackers, right? They kind of all share these three mindset traits. And those mindset traits are that hackers are contrarian, hackers are committed, and hackers are creative. And there's a whole TED talk where I explain those ideas and how like, what happens when the average person applies those mindsets to your life? Like good things happen. You're able to achieve your goals is the spoiler of uh, an outcome of that talk. But um, so contrarian thinking basically is where hackers look at situations and they say, look, I know most people do X, but what if I did Y? Right? They, they look at it upside down or inside out. And then when I say that hackers are committed, what I mean by that is that Hackers are on a mission, right? They're willing to invest the time, the effort, the money, and the resources to pursue that mission. And that's actually where the security community, I think some, not, not security community, people who buy security products and services falter very often is that they m underestimate hackers. And they're like, let's just do it the cheap way. But they underestimate the fact that hackers are committed. Uh, and then the third 
characteristic that hackers are creative is the idea that hackers are inventive and they're original and they're innovators. And I was mentioning before how I spend time talking to artists because artists are creative. And in fact, the way that artists think are the way that hackers think in a lot of ways. And um, this creativity manifests in the novel ways that systems get hacked because hackers are always coming up with new ways to attack systems. So that, those are the sort of the three primary characteristics. The common thread, of course, to all of that is, you know, curiosity, right? Hackers are just, they're curious. And that's what influences these, these three uh, mindset traits. You know, can it be done differently? Can I pursue the mission? And can I do it in innovative and new ways? They, they all sort of tie together in that way. And I guess kind of following on from that as well, then, what, when did you realize you were an ethical hacker? What did that look like? I like that question. That, that's, that's really cool because for the longest time, I actually did not consider myself a hacker. Once I finally agree, uh, well, I guess once I relented, and was like, fine, I'm a hacker. Uh, definitely an ethical hacker. But I resisted to it because my definition of hacker for a while was too narrow and was incomplete. And for the longest time, I defined hacker as someone who hammers a keyboard, right? A computer scientist, someone who's actually attacking a system, whether it's for a malicious outcome or for a positive outcome. And that's not what I do. I, I lead hackers, but I'm not myself uh, actually delivering the projects that our company does. I hire brilliant people to do that, but that's not my role. That's not my value add. And so for the longest time, I was like, I'm not a hacker because I don't do that. But over time, as I really thought about this concept of what is a hacker, I mean, think about those three mindset traits I just described, right? None of those had to do with your ability to manipulate code. And that's where I originally drew the definition. And I realize now that that's not what a hacker, a hacker is not just someone who manipulates code. A hacker is someone who looks at a system and applies those three mindset traits. So I am, I've now come like a long way in my definition of, of what I think a hacker is. And a hacker, I believe, exists in all of us. I believe every person, every human on earth innately has a hacker in them. And the question is whether or not they release that hacker and whether or not they allow themselves to be contrarian and to be committed and to be creative. And so for me, probably once I recognized that, I don't know, it was maybe like three or four years ago. And, and at first it was almost like a practicality because people just kept calling me hacker. And I was like, no, and I kept correcting people. I'm like, no, I'm not a hacker. And then I was like, okay, first of all, this is exhausting. Like correcting literally everyone. But it made me start thinking. I was like, if all these other people think that I am that, why do they think that? And then I started analyzing. I was like, you know, relative to most people in the world, I actually am an ethical hacker. And I've absorbed through osmosis all these ways of thinking that all these brilliant people who work for us uh, the way they think. And uh, so I think that's something that probably every person has a problem with, right? Our, our, our uh, blinders are so narrow. We always can only see the person who's maybe slightly like one level above us in whatever that thing is that we think we are. And uh, that in itself is limiting. And so I think this journey that I was on, of, like figuring out who I am in, in the context of like the communities I serve, Eventually, I was like, okay, fine. I'm an ethical hacker. And, and now I'm like, why did I ever think I was not one? <laughs> I, needed, I needed to, I guess, rethink that. But so a few years ago is the short answer to your question. Oh, no, I appreciate that. And obviously, I think 
Spe- speaking of those kind of three C's, the, the one that stood out to me there was creativity and just kind of walking through the experience of having to prepare for a TED talk. I mean, for those who don't know, they're, they're incredibly short pieces, right? It's a 15 minute sharp, snappy kind of keynote, but more keynote plus, I'll probably say. How, how did you work towards that goal of 15 minutes? What, what was that like for you? Yeah, that, what an amazing journey. Oh my God. Like, difficult journey but being on the other side of it of having delivered it uh it's it was incredible it was transformational in a lot of ways this was something i'd wanted to do for a really 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 long time i mean basically since i entered security and i had that idea of like well i should be on a stage i'm the kind of person who's like well if i'm in a stage i might as well be on the most elite stage in the world at some point right like i might as well give a ted talk at some point yeah like why why are we farting around you know like let's just go for it and um so that had always been in the back of my mind. And then after a few years of uh, speaking, as I was sort of like building my capabilities, then I started reaching out to different uh, organizations. Um, and then uh, as my my speaking life, as I'd just been doing more and more, then eventually I got on the radar of a few organizers and they started reaching out to me. And um, I kept be- becoming a finalist for different um, TED Talks, but I never crossed the finish line. And my motivation for writing my book was to help people who have these problems with uh, around how to build software securely and how to actually approach securing software. So that was the motivation writing the book. But one of the like uh, items on the list of like, why do I want to do this? What would I celebrate as a success outcome once the book is published was thinking about a TED Talk. And sure enough, it did change things because uh, authors make great speakers on a TED stage. You don't have to be an author to be to give a TED talk, but authors are really good for a TED talk because they've spent a lot of time refining their idea. So in a way, I'd actually been preparing for this for like 10 years. But then once um once selected, and that was kind of interesting how I was mentioning how I had been uh, a finalist multiple times but never been actually selected. Well, then I published the book and then shortly thereafter all of a sudden uh, I was a finalist in uh, um, for two talks and both selected me. So now I was in like the opposite problem. I had to actually turn one down. I was like, oh my God, I, like, I, I, I can't believe I went from like, no, at, like I've been pursuing this for so long and all of a sudden I now have to say no to one of them. Cause you can, I just really wanted to focus on one and make sure I did the best possible job and, and not, and then I think there's, there might even have been like some sort of rule where you can only do one. I think that you can only do one per year kind of thing. I don't know. Either way. So I do the one. And so once accepted, then you have about, I forget the exact timeline. I want to say it was like four months maybe from when I was selected until when the event was going to happen. And that was really, really fascinating experience because one of the things they do, the organizers, they really want you to do a good job. They, not just because they want you to do a good job because like that's like some, I don't know, nice thing, but because they want to make sure that anyone who steps on their stage is of the caliber that would be expected of giving a TED Talk. So one of the things that they do, they assign me a speaking coach. I've worked with coaches obviously in the past, or maybe that's not obvious. I've worked with coaches in the past, and um, but they assigned me one, which I was grateful to receive that coaching. Uh, and then they also had me submit versions of it every maybe like frequently every two weeks or something like that and the first thing that happened was really interesting 
was the idea that I've been accepted for was slightly different than the idea that I put on the stage. And the idea I was accepted for, the very first meeting with my coach, she was like, no. It's like, that's not going to work. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. I was like, here I am. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I was taken aback by this because I'm like, isn't this what you, what I was accepted to talk? And she wasn't saying like, don't talk about king or hackers, but she was saying the way you're, the way that idea is packaged doesn't help a general audience enough. And so she really pushed me and she, and like every version of it. And so we started like iterating on this idea and that was both exhilarating to refine and improve an idea, but it was also uh, kind of scary because time was bleeding. It went from, you know, four months out, three months out. Now we're like two months out and I still didn't really feel that the idea was fully sharpened. And I didn't really like the idea. I didn't like where the idea was going. And then I remember there was this one night I had, uh, it was over the summer, and I had gone out to the bars with some friends, and I came home, you know, I had, I wasn't like wasted, but I wasn't drunk, but I was like, you know, wasn't fully sober, but I was like, go to bed. And I like, two hours later, I nap awake. I like literally sit up in my bed. And I was like, there's the idea. It just, it had been marinating in the back of my mind for, for months. And so I, you know, pop up and I just start, it's like three in the morning. And I write the whole outline that I wanted it to be. Call my coach the next day and was like, what we've been working on, it's this. And I can't remember her exact words, but the vibe was basically like, it had been there all along. Let's go. And, uh, and that was the idea that I just had outlined to you. I basically like, I wrote in the middle of the night after it kicking around in the back of my mind for a while. And so then once I had the idea locked in, now it was, I knew it was right because it no longer felt like work. Because now it was like, well, this is the idea I want people to know. So then what you do is, uh, so then I'm, I wanted to do a good job on stage. So now it's just about repetition. So as you, you mentioned, they're short. Uh, TED Talks are a maximum of 18 minutes. The best performing ones are less. So I was aiming for between 12 and 15. Uh, I'm not, I haven't seen the video yet, so I'm not sure exactly how long, but I think it's like right about 15, maybe 14 minutes. And there's no slide. Oh, I didn't want to do slides because they just weren't going to help the idea. I just wanted to, I wanted to paint the picture with stories. Uh, and there's no, uh, there's no like teleprompter or anything, which is not unusual, but you, you want to deliver it well. So here I am wanting to deliver this 15-minute talk without any aid, and I have to memorize it, which I never do. I normally get up there, and I'm like, these are the five stories I'm going to tell. I tell the five stories. If the story deviates a little bit, it's like, fine. I just like follow wherever it goes at the time. But this is like, no, this is, you get one shot at this. And uh, so I just rehearsed and repetition, 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 repetition. And I fly out to Frankfurt, where the event was, about a month before to do the dress rehearsal. And I'm like, okay, I finally get to prove to the organizers that I've done a good job. So I get up there in front of them. I'm standing literally on the red circle, which like gave me chills to stand on it. And it's just these like six or seven organizers. And I'm, I'm not nervous on stage ever. I was like peeing my pants in front of these people right now. Like I gotta do a good job. So I do the whole thing and they look at each other 
and in such a German way, which is like frank and direct, they were just like, I don't hate it. And that was like the highest praise they could give. I don't hate it. And I'm like, can I get a hug or something? I'm too American in this dynamic. I, I need like an, yeah, I need an added, like give me a high five. Exactly. They said, I don't hate it. And um, it turns out that was really, that was high praise. And so they gave me some like things to work on or whatever. And then what I did for the next, so and then I came back to America and for the next several weeks, I just rehearsed just over and over. And I rehearsed like everywhere. I, Cause I knew the difference between giving a good talk and a great talk was simply preparation. And so I would like rehearse it in the shower. I remember at one point I was uh, on a business trip and I'm at a hotel, I'm at the gym. There's no one in the gym and I'm on the elliptical and I'm like, I got 15 minutes. So I'm like, you know, working out and I'm practicing my talk and I don't realize someone had come into the gym and I'm like, you know, huffing and puffing. I'm like full volume practicing this thing. And someone's there like doing their bench press or whatever. And they're like, can this guy stop? Like what is going on over there? And um, so the repetitions, they, they paid off because then when, I, when the day came, I was very, very nervous, which um, I think anyone, actually not I think, I know, anyone who saw me on that stage and I told them I was nervous that day, they were like, you were nervous? That, that's what nervous looks like? I wasn't nervous on stage, but I was very nervous right before. And as soon as I got on the stage, it just like zen. You know, I was just totally at peace. And I get up there and I had this goal that I wanted to, I, I didn't have to do this, but I wanted to do this. I wanted to deliver without an error. I want, you know, stumble on a word or put in an um or an ah. I wanted to have a flawless delivery, which is crazy. I mean, 15 minute talk that you've memorized is like thousands of words or something. It's like, it's a crazy aspiration, but I did it. And when I got up and I delivered the last word and I said, thank you. And then everyone's applauding. And I was like, I just gave a Ted talk without a flaw. Like I just achieved this life goal. It was, oh man, what a absolute life highlight that moment was. And then to know when this video comes out, it's going to help people. It's like, what a journey, man. What an incredible journey. That, that is nothing short of incredible and congratulations. Like what, what a, what a journey you've been on, right? Like incredible so th thank you so much for sharing more about that you um you mentioned halfway through about stories and obviously i wish i could talk for for hours and hours but there was one big story i wanted to kind of ask you about from my research uh into you which was about the cryptocurrency research that you've recently published um statistical improbability and ethereum um i mean where do you think the best place to start telling that story is for our listeners well, let me use a metaphor to describe this highly scientific mathematical construct called statistical improbability that like, who cares what that is? But it, it is actually really, really important because, and I'll, I'll explain why it's important, but let me describe what it is first. And when I wanted to understand what this was, I even needed this to be explained to me. So I'll tell the story about the research. The, one of our hackers was working on this project where he was looking at Ethereum wallets and he got really excited one day because he found something. And as he came to me and our team, uh, he, he was like, I predicted the keys. 
And now, of course, anyone listening to this who's a security professional knows like, well, if you predicted the keys, that's kind of a big deal. But I still, even though I knew that was a big deal, I wanted to, I wanted to push him. I want to understand why. And so I said, why does that, why does that matter? And he's like, well, I shouldn't be able to predict them. It's statistically improbable that I can do that. And I, and I was like, well, explain that to me. Explain unpredictability. And he sort of thought for a second. And he said this metaphor that is, is so good. I mean, I, I opened my book with this. I put this in my TED Talk. I was like, this is such a great way to describe something that's so intangible to people. Like, what is unpredictability? Um, he said, imagine you go to the beach and you pick up a grain of sand and then you throw the grain of sand back. And then I go to the beach and I pick up a grain of sand. How likely is it that I picked up yours? And I sort of thought about that. I was like, I don't know. That sounds impossible. And he's like, exactly. But now multiply that by every beach on Earth and then multiply that by a gazillion planet Earths. He's like, that's how unlikely it is that I should be able to predict a key. And I thought that was a pretty cool illustration. I mean, even just the idea of the one beach. It's like, ah, that seems impossible. And then it's multiplied by multiplied by multiplied. And it's, oh, okay, I get it. This, you shouldn't be able to guess them. And so while I'm kind of having that thought process, he says, but I just did it 732 times. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's like you walked in the middle of the Sahara Desert and you picked up my grain of sand, not once, but hundreds of times. Okay, tell me more about this. So now I'm like, I'm in it, right? Because it's, this is clearly a flaw, right? This is not, it's not, he didn't guess. And it turns out what he had done is he looked at the way that the system handled errors. And from the error handling process, he could derive a method that enabled him to predict some of the keys. So then, because this is Ethereum, meaning it leverages a blockchain, which we can actually inspect, we were able to answer the question, how much money are we talking about here? If the 732 wallets are vulnerable, how much money? And it turns out that it was quite a bit. At the time, the value of the Ethereum was around 54 million US dollars. So that's a lot of money, right? Which then that begets the question, well, if you have $54 million protected by weak, predictable keys, that's kind of like a pile of cash is just sitting on the sidewalk. Someone's going to steal it eventually, right? And it turns out someone did. We discovered that every single unit of currency from all 732 wallets had all been extracted and funneled to a single destination wallet. The final thing that we did was we wanted to see, well, how quickly do wallets get looted? And so what we did was we sent a dollar's worth of our own Ethereum to one of those vulnerable wallets and just observed. And it was almost instant. I mean, snap your fingers. It was like that quickly. The money was sent to that same destination wallet. So what's wild about that is that not only were these unpredictable keys predicted, not only was it a ton of money, but it was actively happening. We'd stumbled upon a hacker actively stealing money from people. And we would go on to uh, publish this research with Wired Magazine. We named this yet unidentified group or person the Blockchain Bandit. And it's a really remarkable story, not only because it's interesting, I think, but because a lot of times security research is framed 
under the context of this could happen if, right? Like here's a vulnerability and if an attacker exploited it, this bad thing would happen. So security research lives in that world. Headline news lives in a different world, which is this was a bad outcome. We don't necessarily know how it happened, but this company was breached. And what this research did was it sort of bridged the two where it was like, look, this isn't theory. This isn't hypothetical. This is actually happening. And here's how, because we could derive the method that the attacker was using because obviously they had discovered the same weakness that we had discovered. And that tells us two really important things that all security professionals, all technologists can take away from this story. And they are this, number one, security vulnerabilities exist. And number two, attackers exploit them. So this isn't theory. This isn't a bunch of paranoid security nerds in a corner. These things actually happen. And that's why it makes sense to invest time, effort, money, and resources in pursuing your security mission. We're just thinking about all of the un unlikely or uh, yeah, improbable situations through all of that step-by-step. Step. And I'm thinking... So you found that you found the two grains of sand or the same grain of sand twice, and then 732 times. And in fact, of all of those 732 grains, somebody else, that's three way. So the multiply of the multiply of the multiply three times like cubed. What, what made that possible? Like what, what made those 732 more vulnerable than others? Flawed assumptions. And that is the the inherent truth for why a field like mine exists, why ethical hacking exists, why companies who are building things need to hire hackers, need to hire penetration testers. Need, like a lot of companies, they think about security testing as this box they want to check because their customer is asking them to do it. And they're like, all right, what's the, what's the easiest way we can tell the customer we got a penetration test. I'm putting that in air quotes because most penetration tests are actually not penetration tests. They're like, but what, how do I help the customer feel like I did this thing? But that totally misses the point because things are built. This is a universal truth about all things, but we're talking about, of course, about software right now. But things are built under a set of assumptions. So a person building a thing assumes certain things about how things are built. They assume things about how things might uh, fail. They make some assumptions about how people will use the thing. And where those assumptions are flawed is where vulnerabilities exist. And so what the best hackers, so both the good kind and the bad kind do, is they're able to really put themselves in the shoes of the person who built the thing and say, what was this person assuming? And then they can start to poke at those assumptions. And where they find the flaws in the assumptions, that's where the really bad vulnerabilities exist. So they might so a, a developer, someone building a thing might assume, and I hear this, I still hear this all the time. People might assume, well, no one would do it that way. No one would ever interact with it that way. Like, for example, we'll be in a meeting with a customer or maybe a prospective customer, and we'll say something like, well, what if an attacker did X? What well, doesn't matter what X is, but what if an attacker did X? And people will literally say, oh, well, no one would think to do that. And I'm like, we literally just did. I literally just asked you about it. So if I thought about it, someone else probably will too and probably already has, to be honest. And it's those flawed assumptions about how things operate, how people operate, how systems work. 
That's where the problems lie. Cool. As um, as we've just been kind of explaining that as well, I think just just for the benefit of some of our listeners who may be sat there thinking, "Uh oh, I wonder if my my wallet is vulnerable." Um, are there any kind of security tips, measures for individuals or organizations that you you could think of to help them protect their assets? Are you asking specifically about cryptocurrency or about whatever it is that they're trying to protect? Yeah. Well, I would certainly uh, manage them yourselves in cold storage if you can. Uh, this isn't even a security point. This is just like a being smart point. Uh, as we see the, the collapse of all these different exchanges one by one, you know, Voyager, FTX, who's what's falling next? If your cryptocurrency is being managed by an exchange and not by yourself, you don't actually own that cryptocurrency. And if that company goes out of business, you're you're in tough shape. And uh, I've certainly been a victim of that. I learned that the hard way, right? And I was like, oh, got to get this out. So I, I still have some money that got stuck in Voyager. Um, that was a dumb move on my part, leaving. I knew I had to get it out and I just didn't. But yeah, uh, self-manage for sure. Amazing. And it's just la last question on kind of this piece is, you mentioned right at the start, you're an ethical hacker. You're sat there with a group of people with $54 million in front of you. What was going through your mind at that point? Was there any small part of you that thought, do you know, gray hats don't seem so bad. Maybe black hats every now <laughs> and then. Should we see what we're doing here? That is a funny question uh, because, well, I mean, it's just a really, it's a good question. I'm sure people are wondering it too. Uh, no, the, the express explicit instruction that we all made amongst everyone at the organization was do not touch the money and not i mean obviously there's an ethical and moral reason to not touch it we don't want to steal someone's money but it's like the second you do that how are you not a thief and you might just go to jail right it's like it's it's so much better to not live with that you know hanging hanging over your head um so uh, the temptation for me in our organization was definitely not there. Uh, I think the repercussions were significant. Um, we like the lives that we're building. But I absolutely see how that would be compelling to people, especially when you think about people who live in um, you know, parts of the world where there's maybe lesser economic opportunities, right? The, in developing nations where there might not be career paths like you can have in Western Europe or the United States or uh, Australia and, and some of these places. And all of a sudden you have an opportunity where you can, you can just make money. And, and it's not even about, that's not even like a greed thing or a capitalist thing. That's a survival thing. And what's really fascinating to me is a lot of people think about hackers as the, the bad types of hackers as, um, as these sort of, uh, all of them are very, very malicious. And many of them are. In fact, maybe most of the bad types of hackers are malicious. But in fact, a lot of them, they're just providing for their families the same way any one of us are. And maybe their association with ethics and morals is a little looser, but really that's what they're doing. They're going effectively to a job. They're making money doing it. And so it is a really compelling thing. Uh, but inherent in the question that you've asked, uh, I feel this question all the time, right? Which is, how does how does one know the difference 
when they're trying to hire, say, a company or an individual? How do you know the difference between a true ethical hacker, like a true white hat, a true black hat, someone who's malicious, and someone who's maybe fluid in the middle on their ethics? And uh, I, first of all, believe that there is no such thing as a gray hat hacker because your morals are, they're pretty clear. Either you're doing something for noble purposes or you're not. And uh, the ar there are arguments and I would actually welcome them <laughs> about, well, what about this situation where this person's like, you know, Ted, you just talked about survival. This person's just trying to survive. Is that ethical or not ethical? When you're doing things that hurt others, uh, I think that's pretty clear. So you're either white hat or you're black hat. And then people wonder like, how do you know if someone's white or black hat? And black hats, pretty clearly identify themselves. White hats pretty clearly identify themselves. And the question is, of people who present themselves as white hat, are some of them black hat? And the answer to that is probably. I, have, I don't know of, of any, but it has to exist. But I think the way that people can vet that is just the way that you vet any person in your life, right? You, you just evaluate all the uh, social proof around them. You make judgments based on your instinct. You look at their contributions to their field or whatever. And you do the best that you can. Um, you know, someone like Bernie Madoff, everyone thought he was trustworthy and it turns out he wasn't, right? So like, you're not gonna be right maybe every time, but this, of the problems that exist in the world of hacking, I think black hats presenting themselves as white hats, people hiring them and then getting somehow defrauded, that, that that's an edge case problem that I think. No, I appreciate that, thank you. And. Um... I guess we're starting to like air on the edge of uh, your new book, Hackable, How to Do Application Security Right. So you've presented a couple of concepts already to us, but what, what's your book about and what are some, some of the kind of main ideas and concepts that you are presenting in there? Yeah, so here's why I wrote this book, because I think that will be the best way to answer that question. I wrote the book because in I mentioned, right, that I run this group of ethical hackers. And that means that Companies hire us to hack them, to find their vulnerabilities, and to help them build better, more secure systems. Um, so whether that's someone hiring us or that's research that we do without being compensated for, it's kind of the same approach. And I discovered that over many years of doing this and talking to many uh, customers or prospective customers or just people in the community, maybe people after I deliver a keynote or just meet out at DEF CON or various conferences, I discovered that, to me, I realized that it seemed everyone seems to have the same problems. Now, they describe them differently. They might not use all the same words, but I was able to organize them essentially into sort of nine different problems. And a tenth I added after when I realized, well, it's not a problem, but what's the payoff that they're looking for? So there's really like kind of 10 areas that people are thinking about when it comes to securing their systems. And I thought that was really interesting once I identified that. Because then I started thinking about, well, how do you address those problems that everyone has? How do you solve them? And that was what motivated me to write the book because I realized the way that most people talk about solving those problems is wrong. And that was compelling to me. So I sat down and I started talking about each of these ideas and they have to do with things like, well, how do you, uh, what should the goal be? Like, what's the goal of security? Uh, how do you share information with your security partner? How do you select a security partner? What is penetration testing? Um, how often should you do security? How much should you invest money in security? 
Uh, how much money should you invest in security? Uh, what is the role of how you think about your threat model? Like who are the different attackers you're thinking about? And then ultimately, the, this was sort of the 10th one, the final uh, chapter is about how do you, what's the business benefit? And so I addressed each of these ideas. I called out the misconceptions where most people get it wrong and said, here's what to replace it with instead. And then here's how you do it. So it's really written for people like t uh, chief technology officers or equivalent, right? People who are who are in charge of building secure systems. So that's sort of one audience. The other audience is uh, security professionals. And then the third audience is uh, developers. So it serves those sort of three audiences because the overlap between all three of them, which is how do I build more secure systems? Uh, they all, although they approach it, those three audiences approach it slightly differently from slightly different angles, uh, they all share that concern. And so that's what the book is about. It's stories from the front lines of ethical hacking, like some of the ones I've told today. And then how do you apply the lessons from those stories so that you can build better, more secure systems? So it's all the same advice I give all my customers, just written in a book. I was like, I got to get these ideas out as broad as we can. And uh, so that's why I wrote it. And that's what it does. You mentioned there um, threat modeling. And I think it's been interesting that throughout the course of this podcast, we, we've spoken about human motivations, drivers. Are there, are there other psychological aspects of a human that you think you should factor into a threat, mod, a threat model? Definitely. I mean, well, motivation is, that's the key, right? And uh, not everyone. I was about to make a general incorrect statement. Uh, many people think that hackers are motivated to make money. That is true, but only in part. Attackers who are motivated to make profit are motivated by money. But everyone else is motivated by different things, right? So organized criminals, they're, of course, motivated to make profit. But nation states are organized to gain a geopolitical advantage. Hacktivists are motivated to um, make a statement. Casual or small group hackers are motivated to prove they can do it or obtain notoriety. And then you've got this whole group of insider threat uh, who are motivated by even different things, right? You've got uh, the accidental insider. They're not even motivated to hurt the organization at all. They just do something dumb. Or you've got disgruntled insiders who are motivated to harm the organization because they were, they're annoyed about something. They were passed over for promotion or don't like the CEO's political stance or whatever. So you've got all these different motivations and Understanding those motivations is critical in terms of how do you defend against them. And I think motivation is probably one of the most important parts of any threat model because really we're talking about something very scientific, right? How do I build a system in a certain way that is resilient against a certain malicious type of process? But it all boils down to how do people think? So on one hand, it's how does the attacker think? We already talked about flawed assumptions. So how does the person building think? And then how do all these things fit together so that a system is less likely to suffer a catastrophic compromise? I, I thought it was really interesting as well. You mentioned a couple of times, um, <clears throat> there are pen tests and then there are pen tests. If we put those in air quotes to no air quotes, I think you talk in your book about the, the difference between what's known as a black box versus a white box pen test. Can, can you just explain the difference and why one would be preferable over the other? 
Yeah, so there's there's two components to this, and we, we should break them apart and talk about them separately. So one is the methodology, and then the other is the testing type. So methodology is black box versus white box, and testing type is pen test, vulnerability scan, red team, so on and so forth. So methodology is basically how do you approach the project? So black box refers to the idea there's no information shared. And then white box refers to the idea that information is shared. And I'm talking about sharing between the organization hiring the test and the organization performing the test. Now, this is a very common misconception. I write an entire chapter about this problem because a lot of people think we should get black box because the attacker doesn't have information. So we shouldn't give it to our tester because we want to, and I'm putting this in air quotes, emulate real world attack conditions. The attacker doesn't have this information, so we shouldn't give it to our tester. But here's the problem with that. You're not testing the system. You're testing the tester. Can this tester, within this amount of time that I've budgeted to pay them for, compromise the system? Maybe. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. If they don't, what does that tell you? If they do, what does that... It doesn't actually tell you anything. It tells you about that tester in that amount of time. But that's not the goal of security testing. The goal of security testing is to find vulnerabilities, understand their severity, and fix them. And you need to approach it white box to do that. So what white box does is that's where you actually share uh, information. So access to source code, access to engineers, even um, design documentation, describe how the system works. And here's the metaphor to describe the difference between the two. So if we can imagine a castle, right? So anyone who's watched Game of Thrones, anyone who's ever gone anywhere in Europe, like we've all seen a castle in our life, right? And we think about a king. The king cares about caring, uh, protecting the king's own life. And so a king would you know, send off a carrier pigeon to a noble and say, send some knights and see if you can break into our castle. And there's two ways the king could do it. One way is they could do it black box and say, I'm not going to tell the knights any information about how the system works. So the knights, what are they going to do? They're going to show up and they're going to be like, all right, we got a moat. I see some alligators. Let's start counting these alligators. Okay, I see one there. I see one. Okay, we got some alligators. Looks like there's a drawbridge. I see some, some dudes with uh, you know, hot oil on, up on the turrets. Um, we got arch archers up on the turrets. We got guys pouring hot oil down the walls. Okay, I think, I think I understand the defenses. The king already knows how many alligators are in the moat. You just spent time researching that. The king's time when the king already knows that. Instead, the king could be like, look, we got 15 alligators. We got 22 archers. We use this much oil. They go over this walls. Here's how the perimeter walls work. How would you attack me? And now what the knights can do is they'd say, you know, you've got this potential weakness. Looks like you've got like a little tunnel. And the king's like, oh yeah, I use that in the event that we're under siege. I want to be able to escape. And the knights are like, well, is it protected? Is there a guard there? And they're like, yeah, there's one guard there. And the knights will say, okay, well, let's explore. Like if I was going to invade your castle, I'd probably send my army in there. I'd kill the one guard and I'd come that way. Now, the guys who came in the black box form, they didn't know about the tunnel. Does that mean when they told the knight, when they told the king they couldn't get in, does that mean this vulnerability didn't, didn't exist? Of course not. And they spent all that time telling the king stuff he already knew, wasting time on, uh, on red herrings, when within the first 10 minutes in the white box approach, 
you find the most serious issue. So that's why you really want to share information because the one primary advantage that the defender has over the attacker is information. So we should take advantage of that. And so when we do black box, we're actually limiting the advantage that we have. We instead want to take advantage of it and pursue white box. So that's the difference between methodology. We can talk about the difference between testing types, but I know your question was about methodology. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I know we're, uh, we're also coming up close to kind of the end of our time together. So I've got a few more, few more questions, which I'd love to get your perspective on. Um, the first of all, what's not being taught about security in schools that you feel should be? Everything we talked about today so far. <laughs> that's maybe that's a cavalier way to say it. Um, but I think that the role of ethical hacking and how to pursue it, it's not being taught well enough. Uh, I do get to speak to students frequently. And what you find is that even in a security degree program, there's usually not enough emphasis on this idea of, of hacking, right? The, if someone wants to pursue this as a career or uh, they just want experience, or they just want to understand it, they usually have to join a club. And that's unfortunate. Um, so that's one of the things that is changing for sure, uh, especially as security-specific degree programs are popping up. But all the, all the primary principles we talked about today are still not well enough understood in the academic context. And I'm excited to see this changing, but it's not fully changed enough yet. We're still not producing enough uh, of the talent that is needed that has these capabilities already. Not everyone gets the kind of 3 a.m. inspiration after a few beers to, to go in a completely different direction with their career. But if somebody did, and they kind of feel like maybe it's too late for me to get into cybersecurity, what would you say to them? You're wrong. I would say that it's not, it's not too late. I mean, when I pivoted to security, I was at that point in my late 20s, uh, mid, mid to late 20s. Um, you know, I was already six or seven years out of college and I actually started my career in college. You know, I started a company in college. So, uh, I had started my entrepreneurial path. I mean, I guess you could say I started when I was a kid and doing all the like side businesses that little kids do. But like, if you don't count that, you count real businesses. I started my career when I was like 17 or 18. And so 10 years later to say, Hey, I really want to, I want to change what I'm doing. And then to be able to do it and to really thrive, especially in a place that's so, so scientific and has, you know, requ does require ostensibly a certain amount of academic background. I didn't find that to be, uh, to be an issue. And so if people want to change fields, you want to change careers, do it. I guess more of a, more of a personal one now for you, you've got heck of a heck of a life goal list that you've already sort of ticked off and to-do list that you you seem to have gone through what what's left for you <laughs> a lot of people have asked me that after the ted talk they're like well now what uh you know because i'm a big big goal kind of person um i have a few that i keep close to my vest that i probably won't share right now but the short answer to your question is that there are big things that I'm working on. Amazing. I love the teaser. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to go for a penultimate question now. So uh, kind of a left field one. 
If you could have beers or dinner with any other notable figure or figures in, in this kind of industry, who, who would it be and why? Like, who inspires you? Who do you want to learn from? Yo, if Robert Herjavec is listening right now, I want to go have dinner with the guy. You know, uh, I just find it so fascinating because I, in a lot of ways, I see um, some similarities with what he's done and with like where I want to go. In that he's a he's an entrepreneur first who has built a really wonderful security company and has become a really important um, person influencing the security community and the way people think about security. And uh, he advises companies, which is, you know, one of the things that I uh, am going to be doing in later stages of my career. And so I think that, you know, sitting with someone like that and, you know, I think the way anyone should think about mentorship is find, find the person that's a few stages ahead of you that you want to get to and start to understand how did they do it? Why did they do it? What steps do they take? What sacrifices do they make? And um, I had a funny opportunity where uh, he and I were both keynoting a conference he was the opening keynote i was the closing keynote and uh we like passed each other in the hallway and i, I really wanted to talk to him but he was he had like eight assistants they were you know rushing him off to, to go do something and it was not the right time but uh lunch with robert herjavec would be great oh awesome i think yeah that would be a, a really fun lunch as well from everything you see and read of him like incredible guy and yeah thank you for sharing that and then th this last question is is from one of our previous guests. Um, I think it's really interesting. It, it kind of speaks uh, speaks volumes. But how do you prioritize your time and responsibilities? I love that question, uh, and I think about that question regularly. So the way that I prioritize is I think about what is the thing that I do that I can do right now that will deliver the most meaningful impact to the organization. And those things change, obviously. They shift over time. The organization shifts. My capabilities shift. My interests might shift. But by constantly asking that question, that helps me think differently about what it is that I'm doing, where time should go, and, and releasing yourself from the ego of like, well, this is what I do, or I've been working on this, or I said I was going to do this thing. Like before you asked what my goals are and the reason I hesitated to share them is I would much rather talk about what I have done than what I am going to do. Like, let's just do it rather than be attaching ourselves to this thing that must be done. And so when we can disassociate from that ego and say, well, okay, that thing I've been working on for two weeks, two months, two years, it now no longer is a priority and I'm okay with abandoning it. That leads us to good things later. I love it. This has been such a pleasure to have you on and, and kind of pick away at your brain and See, see what's happening behind the scenes really with you and just a, an absolutely thrilling episode and I'm, I'm kind of gutted we're we're at the end of it now um bef before we leave is there anything you wish i asked you that i hadn't i loved all the questions these are great you made me think differently about a lot of these questions so uh no i guess the thing i would just leave the audience with would be if anything we talked about today uh inspires the need to ask follow-up questions you want to get a hold of me you want to follow me on social media you want to learn more about my book you want to contact us about Pen testing, like however I can be useful to you, just go to tedharrington.com and everything you could need to know is right there. Super easy. Thanks, Ted. I appreciate that. And to certainly be uh, diving into your book on my next flight in the next couple of weeks. And I just want to say, like again, a huge thank you for agreeing to be a guest and spending time with me today. Um, really look forward to uh, 
uh, I guess, meeting you in person one day at a conference, I'm sure, and uh, having that 3 a.m. beer and picking your brains a, a little bit more. But no, thank you so much for being here today and showing up. I really appreciate it. And it's just been an incredible episode. So thank you. Yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This has been really fun. And uh, yeah, I look forward to that beer at a conference at some point. Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.